0: Hello. Uh, I'm actually back from, I don't know if it, whether anybody noticed or not, because we had such wonderful reruns on last week. But uh, the last time I was live on the air was a week ago today. I did last Monday's show, and then I went to New York for four days, and I saw lots of theater and a movie and read a book and ate some food, and now I'm back. Um, and what we're going to do today is a little bit different from what we usually do, although this is not the first time that we've done this. We have not booked any guests. We're just going to play this music all the time for an hour until you go crazy. (laughs) I'm not even going to talk. We're just going to play this music until you beg us to stop. No. (laughs) What is this? Um, So anyway, what we're going to do today is that you're going to get to call in. Um, Now I'm afraid that only I can hear this music, that it might be some kind of brain problem that I'm having right now. we're we're going to ask you to call in and talk about a series of topics there's going to be a separate topic for each segment so it's important to kind of follow the rules. Uh, first of all, I'll give you the phone number. No, I'll tell you the topics first, and then you'll want to know the phone number. So here in the first segment, we are going to talk about gun policy post-weekend marches. Obviously, we have seen a physical set of demonstrations unlike any the any other that has preceded it on behalf of saner gun policy. Uh, the next question is, do we get anything out of this? Um, I'll try to set up some frameworks for talking about it, but I, you know, I think probably you have. I mean, one way to think about this is, what do you think would be a realistic expectation? If, in fact, we look at this past weekend and think, well, the dice seem to be loaded up in a slightly different way all of a sudden. It seems maybe things that were impossible might be possible from that menu of things what's the one that you think is actually attainable, desirable, uh, and make a differenceable. Uh so we're gonna start there. So the first segment is gun policy. Don't call about Stormy Daniels in the first segment, because that's not the first segment. The first segment is gun policy. The second segment will be Stormy Daniels, not just Stormy Daniels. I mean, obviously it was <clears throat> something of a unifying experience for all of us last night to watch that program. But um there's there's a there there and I will explain the there there. Uh, in the second segment, and I will gladly listen to your phone calls about that. I'm almost ready to give you the phone number. And then in the final segment, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last couple of weeks. and It's about political corruption. It's about political corruption that isn't part and parcel of the Mueller-Russia investigation. Uh, You know, we tend to get kind of distracted by that because it gets all the headlines. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. I actually believe that if we don't have a significant bloodletting, uh, not a literal bloodletting, but, but a bloodletting of the people who have come into Washington in this administration uh, for the purpose of exploiting its lax ethical policies for their significant economic gain. We will never recover our definition of political ethics and our definition of political corruption. I mean, uh, if, if in fact a lot of people don't go to jail um, and otherwise have their their destinies compromised, something is wrong that may stay permanently wrong because what's going on right now is, like I've seen corruption, you know, I've never seen anything like this. And, and so much of it is sort of out in the open. is done brazenly as if there were no such thing. Um, all right, so. Those are the three topics. Now I will tell you the phone number. Remember, this segment, we are talking about gun policy. You saw those marches yesterday. You saw all the discussion uh, of what people, uh, what people's hopes and dreams, and perhaps more relevantly, fears are. Now you can call 860, that's 860, 275-7266. I will repeat that in a slightly different intonation. 860 uh, 275 Seven two six six. That's the number to call. Um, I'll sort of point you in a couple of different directions, uh, but I also very specifically want to uh, hear what you have to say. Uh, but also just to sort of set the the emotional tone, here is the youngest speaker from the March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C. That's Naomi Wadler. Uh, here she is speaking about her own plate.
1: I am here today to represent Cortland Arrington. I am here today to represent Hadia Pendleton. I I am here today to represent Tiana Thompson, who at just 16 was shot dead in her home here in Washington, D.C. I am here today to acknowledge and represent the African-American girls whose stories don't make the front page of every national newspaper, (laughs) whose stories don't lead on the evening news. I represent the African-American women who are victims of gun violence, who are simply statistics instead of vibrant, beautiful girls full of potential. For far too long, these names, these black girls and women have been just numbers. I'm here to say never again for those girls too.
0: You know, it's an important component of this conversation, and it's it's one that we haven't had, and it kind of raised its head a little bit yesterday in the remarks of this young girl, 11 years old. One of my favorite things about her is she doesn't read social media. She said she declined even to Google herself. Um, but— um, in, in the remarks of her, in the remarks of others, uh, uh, one of the spe- young speakers from Los Angeles, he said she learned to duck before she learned to read. But it's still not all the way there. And, and the Daily, which is the excellent podcast of the New York Times, which if you don't listen to it, you should probably at least occasionally listen to it. They're sort of plowing a whole new journalistic furrow there. But but their um, piece today was about Chicago, where uh, as one of the people that they, one of the young people. Uh, Parkland aged people that they interviewed said, said, we don't have mass shootings here. We have daily shootings here. Uh, there's a way in which we treat urban violence, urban violence perpetrated uh, 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 against people of color, often by people of color. We treat that violence as just sort of a given, just sort of a, a cost of doing business as breakage. You know we don't talk about it the same way we talk about the, the this other kind of violence, uh, but uh, that's wrong obviously uh, and there are increasingly voices being raised to say there are just there are people who are growing up in neighborhoods where walking across the street uh, involves leaving the control of one group of people and entering the control of another group of people and putting your safety, physical safety at risk just by walking across the street. So th- we can't leave them out of this conversation. That's a really important thing that came up yesterday. Um, another thing I will just direct your attention to, and then I'm going to grab some calls here, um, is uh, a project the Boston Globe did, which debuted today. Uh, Massachusetts has... <clears throat> by dint of its gun loss and maybe by dint of other things, um, the best rate of gun safety in America. Gun-wise, it's it's the safest state in America to live in. Uh, By that reckoning, by the reckoning they're using, we are the fifth uh, safest state to live in. Um, And they attribute that, or at least they sort of peg it to seven different factors. And what they do then is analyze um, all the states based on those seven different factors. Which of them do you have? Uh, which, which of the gun violence um, mitigating factors do you have in your particular state? The, the project also reads your IP address. So as you're reading, what pops up are phone numbers uh, of relevant political officials in your state for you to contact. Um, so, it's pretty interesting. Uh, a really n- nice and interesting job. And the other thing that they did that was great, they used something called the Coral Project to do comments. You know how comment threads on newspapers and other kinds of news sites, well, a lot of them are just being shut down. And then others of them have just devolved into these just Dante esque, you know, infernal chasms of misery uh, and trolled them. Um, they're using one of the more innovative. Com- uh, Innovative companies. It's called the Coral Project to create a, a comment board, a, a, a curated comment board, but not not a you know, I mean just a troll-screened comment board. That's really good. So when you click on that thing, you can actually read real comments by real human beings who aren't crazy. Uh, all right. So um, uh, uh, the number to call. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at all the calls up on the screen, and I'm trying to uh, figure out what to do here. Yeah, Cynthia wants to talk about corruption. I can't do it right now. I mean, I really would like to c- kind of keep things uh, on uh, on gun policy, 860-275-7266. Corruption is going to be a big conversation in the third and final segment. Uh, so I'm going to go to Sam in New Haven. Hi, Sam. You're on the air, Sam. Hi,
2: Colin. Hi. Hi, Hi Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, obviously, very moved by everything that's been going on these past several months. Just a couple quick comments. I'd love to hear what other people think. Uh, number one, obviously, logically, I think assault weapons need to be banned. Number two, high-capacity magazines also banned. Uh, and the third proposal uh, that I'd like to talk about is whether there should be an excise or property tax on guns, every gun. Doesn't matter how many you have. Each gun is going to be taxed. Uh, ammunition could be taxed. Use the money then to pay for. If people want more officers in school, great. Let's uh, figure out a way to pay for it. Let's put an excise tax on on the guns out there. And the more guns you own, unfortunately, the more taxes you pay. Just like having cars, buying cigarettes, buying alcohol, the more you use
0: the more you pay. I'll um, i really my pres-
2: off there.
0: OK, thanks, Sam. I really like the idea. I, I, what I'd say is every time we talk about one of these things, we kind of, of course, have to run it through the prism of the Second Amendment. The prism, not prism, uh, the prism of the Second Amendment. So to what degree would it probably pass muster? We know we can regulate guns. There's no question about that. We know it's constitutional uh, to regulate aspects of gun ownership. Um, I think that's a pretty decided thing. We know also that we run into the biggest problems with anything that resembles a ban um, uh, of guns. Uh, We probably can't do an uh, Australia-style uh, forcible buyback uh, of weapons, things like that. That's probably never going to happen without an actual amendment of the amendment. Um, the excise tax. I don't know. I mean, if we get a court challenge. How would it do? Uh, I don't know what the, the gun industry has heretofore, and let's all agree that we, we seem to be looking at a new day, heretofore they've been really good at obviously holding themselves harmless from a lot of the economic consequences of this. We know this very well here in Connecticut uh, because uh, the Sandy Hook parents wanted to try to sue uh, Remington for liability. Remington's now having its own problems. but um, they, And in fact, there is a 2005 law which ex- exempts gun manufacturers Uh, from conventional product liability uh, litigation, which is crazy. Um, uh, There's also another law, as you probably know, that exempts guns from the study of the Centers for Disease Control. We're we're not allowed to study uh, at a federal level guns as a cause of death or harm. Uh, there's all kinds of crazy laws There's no basis for anything else. Now, you know, in that climate, you could never get Sam's idea through. But I think in this climate, uh, I mean, I like the idea. I mean, I look I like the idea of treating guns like cars where you have to buy liability insurance when you when you buy a purchase a gun. You have to you know, you can't have a drive a car here in Connecticut without liability insurance. I'd love to see you have to get liability insurance when you own a gun. Uh, That's going to wind up in the Supreme Court, too, uh, if it's ever attempted. Uh, Ideas like that are worth discussing. And I think... When you do that, so one of the things that's in the seven-point Boston Globe idea is that notion of safe storage, Uh, because obviously suicide and accidental death, these are big parts, especially suicide, uh, of gun deaths in America. It's the biggest part of of gun deaths in America is suicide by far. Uh, So you want guns safely stored and stored in a way that they can't be used impulsively, can't be used by people who are not meant to use them. Um and I think if you created some kind of liability structure, like a requirement to buy liability insurance, uh, you'd suddenly create a whole new gun safety industry, which currently does not exist. All right, I'm gonna go back to the phones here, eight six oh two seven five seven two six six. Here's Sue in Southbury. Hi, Sue.
3: Hey Colin, how are you? Good. Good. Well two two quick things. Um, one is I just wanted to add my voice of of respect and admiration um to the kids and you know high school kids and younger who did what they did this weekend you can hear in my voice i get very emotional about it Mm -hmm. at the drop of a hat because i'm just so impressed with them and i'm really i'm really sure that they're the answer you know they are the ones who are going to be the answer to this one way or another um then i've been thinking a lot about the second amendment um because it is important uh you know nobody wants to trash it um and i actually researched it and read it And there's a a word in there that I think is a linchpin to all of this, whether or not gun owners or, you know, the NRA would agree. But it's the word necessity is in there. And so to me, it all comes down to need versus want. I know you might want an AR-15 for whatever crazy reason, but you don't need it. Um, You know what I mean? You Mm -hmm. might need a gun to protect yourself, whether it's a handgun or whatever, or you might need a long gun to go shooting and provide food for yourself. And it's even okay to maybe have guns as for sport, but you don't need an AR-15 to do sporting, you know, sports shooting. Um, so that I just, it's an idea that has been kicking around the back of my brain and I kind of wanted to just get it out there in the public somehow. I've emailed, you know, Senator Blumenthal, I've emailed uh, Senator Murphy, because I think it's a more um, less emotional way of thinking about it. Perhaps it's, maybe more logical if logic is allowed to even enter this discussion anymore. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up as maybe a point of thought or discussion or whatever.
0: Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, we could do a whole show. We could do five whole shows on constitutional attempts uh, at the level of uh, appellate court to figure out what the heck the Second Amendment actually means. It starts with this conditional clause. I believe it's the only amendment that starts with a conditional clause. There have been a lot of different efforts to figure out what that conditional clause, the one that has to do with a well-regulated militia, what does that mean? You know, I mean, is it an imposition? Is it a condition placed on the second half of the amendment? Um, and, And, I mean, the most extreme interpretation of that conditional clause would be if at any point that were not the case that it was not necessarily necessary to fulfill the need for a well regulated militia in this matter in this manner the the right might go out the window that's that's probably the most extreme look at it but yeah i mean a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the language means i think we not to a person but almost to a person could agree that if the 55 framers of the constitution could be brought to 2018 And shown Parkland and shown uh, Sandy Hook and shown the damage done by these weapons that couldn't have been contemplated, whose existence could not have been imagined and certainly their whose whose possession by young, uh, aggravated and, and many times deranged people could not have been contemplated they would have said no that's not what we had in mind at all my god let's fix this thing right now <laughs> and and one of the problems yeah. with the constitution i'm sorry to babble on i'll just uh, i'll say one more thing no, and, no, and i want to hear from all you.
2: Pertinent. what
0: what are the things about the constitution that i keep coming back to is it needs to be amended more often um The 55 framers of the Constitution were 54 white male Protestants and one white male Catholic. Uh, Right away, you wouldn't do a major policy uh, document in America that had only men and only white men. Uh, and only Christian white men uh, were were allowed to work on it. They worked on it in secret. You also couldn't do a policy document of this magnitude that was worked on with no sunlight, no transparency, no public input, no public hearings. And the living conditions of those 55 men were closer in physical detail to the living conditions of the inhabitants of the Roman Empire than they were to the living conditions of 2018. They didn't have phones. They didn't have radios. They didn't have televisions. They didn't have cars. They didn't have airplanes. I could go on. The way that we live today bears no resemblance to the way that those men lived, and yet we're living by a bunch of rules that they made in a state of mind where they couldn't possibly have anticipated the situations that we're in today. So it's an argument for amending more often.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear that big time, because, you know, I I don't know the difference between the different camps of—in terms
2: of the names,
3: but— you know, when it's a, quote, unquote, living document, doesn't that mean that we have to apply our living conditions now? <laughs> right. To those, you know what I mean? Yes. Oh,
0: yeah. uh, uh, yes. Obviously, trying to live by the rules of the late 18th century doesn't really make any sense. It has to be a living document. Thanks for your call, Sue. That was really good. And, okay, let's go uh, up the ladder here, uh, so to speak. Here's uh, Pete in Middletown. Hi, Pete. You're on the air. Hey,
4: Colin. How are you doing? Enjoy good. your show. Thank you. Yeah, a couple of, couple of things. The AR-15 has been available on the market for over 50 years. Uh, No school shootings. Mm -hmm. Okay. The American public has always had access to whatever currently used arm in the American military. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's something new operating that's causing these kids to undertake the horrific acts they're doing. And I think we need to look at the media. With the incessant TV gun violence, okay, and I think we also need to look at the first person shooter video game. Uh, the techniques of manipulation and subliminal manipulation have been available for years. Quality uh, shooters have a long history of. Massive first-person shooter um, video game. First of activity. all, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to be programmed, but I also think they're desensitized. Hmm. Uh, Thirty, forty years ago, the guns were there, the kids were there, the schools were there, the shootings weren't.
0: Well, the other way to look okay, at this, though, Pete. Okay, happening. Pete. Okay, Pete. First of all. I just want to object to one premise, which is obviously assault weapons were banned for a period of time in this country. Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, one of the realities of that ban is that it seemed to create an appetite for assault weapons. And when the ban was lifted, people bought a lot of them. But it's not really true that at all times in our public lives, uh, everybody's had access to the most high-powered weapons. The other thing about about the problem with your analysis is it just doesn't work well across uh, other testable environments. So uh, whenever people bring up video games well, I mean, video games exist all over the world. We have a problem with gun lethality, uh, with lethal gun violence that nobody else in the world has. Um, so if, if, in fact, video games were the problem, you know, Japan would be having like much, much worse problems with gun violence. Uh, Canada would be having uh, a similar level of, of problems with gun violence. Video games are everywhere. Uh, this kind of violence, this problem, these kinds of problems with mass shooters. We have 5% of the world's population, less than 5% of the world's population here in the United States, and 22% of the mass shooters. So there's something else that's happening here. It's not video games. They're everywhere. It's not mental illness. That's everywhere, too. The big difference between America... And everywhere else in the world is the presence of guns. We have more guns per person here than exist anywhere else in the world. So if we have a higher rate of gun lethality, it's probably not because of video games. It's probably not because of the media, because, in fact, people all over the world watch violent movies. It's probably because we have a lot of guns. Uh, And, you know, it's, it's convenient to resort to this other kind of analysis, but I don't think it's particularly accurate. All right, let's go to Ken in Manchester. Hi, Ken. Can you're, you're on
5: here. Thanks for taking my call. Appreciate it. Sure. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was over at uh, uh, the Hartford rally this past weekend, and I was totally impressed by you know the kids. I mean, as far as their organizational skills and their messaging, it was uh, it was incredible, and it was a very proud moment to just watch. You know, being almost a six-year-old man and uh, you know an eight-year Navy vet, and uh, <laughs> I just watched these kids. I was astounded by it. Um, you know their their, their understanding of, uh, of of how to how to how to get a reaction from uh, from from the rest of us. You know, and um, there's a lot of different things. I think that they want to just uh, the NRA just wants to gloss over whether it's you know universal background checks and trade show laws. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're never talking about that. Um, you know, the red flag law, which we're one of the only states that have. And you know, it it it, it just amazes me that. Just because you're part of one party or another, does not, it, it shouldn't be that simple. It should just be about trying to, uh, you know, understand that you're, you're not non-patriotic. You're not, uh, you know, un-American. You're not liberal. You're not socialist if you just want, you know, some common sense laws. And the kids are bringing up a tremendous amount of these things. And, you know, I, I think, you know, the conservative talk shows and the conservative messaging is, you know, they don't have a plan at all. They just right. want to scare you. And these, and these NRA is nothing but fair, fair messaging right. on a regular basis.
0: The young people are very they're much harder to dismiss. One seems ungallant uh, when one tries to write them off uh, in one way or another. Not that those attempts aren't made. But all right. Well, we're running out of time here in this segment. I want to get uh, at least one more call on the air, though. Here's Mark in Windsor. Hi, Mark. You're on the air.
6: Hi, Colin. How are you doing? Um, yeah, I'm a Marine Corps veteran, and uh, I served during Reagan. And uh, I was in an engineering unit, and I was uh, mostly in civilian clothes and long hair and a beard. And uh, <clears throat> the 17 of us, we wouldn't have any our Colt M16A1s or any shotguns, pistols, or revolvers. I had a combat knife, uh, a machete, axe, hammer, and hand tools, and rocks to defend uh, myself.
0: Was there a particular reason? I mean, was that...
6: Uh, like, why, why did... We were, it... we were in civilian clothes yeah. doing stuff, yeah. um, making strategic maps, and uh, if we... Well, we did get caught, mm-hmm. and... Uh, we were almost executed. Mm. Uh, this was in Egypt in '83, mm. and I don't think I don't think people need AR-15s. I could have I could have used, used a AR-15. Mm-hmm. I could have used a twenty two rifle. I could have used a deer rifle. A mm-hmm. uh, a Derringer would have helped me. Yeah. But I was in the military. Yeah. And... Uh,
0: there's a sorry. certain, uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, Mark, thank you for telling that story. Uh, I can hear the anguish in your voice. I hope you have people to talk to you about uh, this on a regular basis because it's a lot to carry around, the stuff that you're talking about right now. But thank yeah. you so much for calling my show. Uh, I really appreciate it. We, we need to take a break here. We have to come back. We have to shift gears. I'm sorry if I didn't get to your call. Um, and we're going to talk about Stormy Daniels, which seems like a shift from where we just were
1: keep trying to teach us what guns are all about confuse liberty with weaponry and watch your kids act it out and every year now like Christmas Some boy gets the milk fits bourbon blues, reaches for the available arsenal, and saunters off to make the news.
0: We are back. This is an all-call show. We're gonna we do this more these days, and we're gonna do it more too. I think it's important. I mean, we get wonderful guests. I got great producers who can get wonderful guests, but it's also really important just to engage with you guys. So last night, um, you know, it's not often that you get what you want. In fact, it's almost never, um, as the Rolling Stones pointed out. Well, you can't always. Um, But last night, uh, many people uh, were watching CBS, and uh, first they were thinking everybody who was watching who did not actually attend. Duke was saying, "I hope Duke loses," and that happened. And then they were also. Then many people were also saying, "I I hope there's something here in the Stormy Daniels report that um, that will meaningfully alter the conversation." Um, And and I think you you got that too. Uh, And I'll tell you a little bit of why. Um, so Stormy Daniels, as I think I don't have to tell anybody, uh, appeared last night on uh, CBS 60 Minutes. Uh, she was interviewed by uh, Anderson Cooper. Uh, and just to, uh, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I guess you don't really have to like, take the little ones out of the room right now because I don't know what they would make of this. Uh, but uh, this is part of her, the story she told about encountering Donald Trump for the first time.
7: It started off uh, all about him just talking about himself. And he's like, uh, have you seen my new magazine?
5: He was showing you his own picture on the cover of right, the magazine.
7: Right. And so I was like, does this, does this normally work for you? And he looked very taken, taken back. Like, he didn't really understand what I was saying. Like I was just, you know, talking about yourself normally work? And I was like, someone should take that magazine and spank you with it. And I'll never forget the look on his face. And he was what, like, what was look- just, I don't think anyone's ever spoken to him like that, especially, you know, a young woman who looked like me. And I said, you know, give me that. And I just remember going, you wouldn't. I was like, Hand it over. And uh, so he did. And I was like, turn around, drop him.
5: You told Donald Trump to turn around and take off his pants? Yes. And did he?
7: Yes. So he turned around and pulled his pants down a little. And, you know, he had underwear on and stuff. And, and I just gave him a couple swats.
0: All right. So I think that is something that kids can hear because, you know, I mean, there's a lesson there. You talk about yourself too much. You're going to get spanked. Um, how, however, obviously, it, this uh, interview ranged on across uh, a bunch of other topics. And now, perhaps, uh, if there are young children in the car, you might have to make a different set of decisions. Uh, but I um, let me tell you my takeaway, and if you want to talk about this, if you watched it or you refused to watch it on certain principles, you could call 860-275-7266. I'll tell you why I think this is important. It's a little bit different from why you—mostly if, if you've been absorbing analysis of this uh, today— or even last night, Uh, you're hearing that it's quite possible that Michael Cohen, the Trump attorney who uh, paid um, hush money, $130,000 in hush money, uh, to Stormy Daniels as part of a non-disclosure agreement, that he may be in violation of campaign finance laws. It's possible that Trump himself is in violation of campaign finance laws, um, that that's maybe kind of the there there. Uh, I would say it's a little bit different, and and here's how it looks to me. Not that that's not an issue, because it absolutely uh, is, or at least can be, an issue. Where I see this is as follows. Um, First of all, Anderson Cooper was very conscientious and steadfast in confronting both Stormy Daniels and her lawyer about instances in which she has denied ever having had relations with Donald Trump. Um, to my way of thinking, that was a laudable act of journalism, and maybe something that they had to do in order to prove even-handedness and seriousness. But I fail to see the point of it, because in fact we know that they had relations because there is a non-disclosure agreement, there is a one hundred and thirty thousand dollar payment. Nobody denies that now. No, nobody in any you know, little part of this story denies that that happened. And there's no such thing as a nondisclosure agreement and a $130,000 payment for something that didn't happen. So we know that they did it. Uh, That's that's not at issue anymore. Uh, We can close that part of the conversation. And the next question is, how unusual was this? We know it's not a one-time occurrence. I mean, we have at least some pretty credible evidence that it's not a one-time occurrence. We have, uh, for example, at minimum, the story of Karen McDougal. That was the one that was reported by The New Yorker a while back. Uh, she's the one where American media, the National Enquirer company, uh, uh, essentially did a catch and kill, as it's called, uh, on behalf uh, of Donald Trump. What they did, the the owner of this company, uh, is uh, friends with Donald Trump. He arranged to pay Uh, Karen McDougal $150,000 for exclusive rights to her story, which he then never ran. Um, But once again, it's not that different a story, although the relationship goes on quite a bit longer. Stormy says, one and done for her. uh, Karen McDougal had a longer story to tell. It had some unusual details, including Donald Trump not apparently understanding that Karen McDougal regarded this as essentially a personal relationship and mistakenly Donald Trump offering Uh, she says, to pay her um, for individual acts. Anyway, um, so we know that this goes on. Uh, It it certainly went on in the case of Stormy Daniels. And we also know, let's let's cut over to the so-called Steele dossier. I also love the fact that nobody's calling up about this right now. (laughs) Nobody wants to talk about this. Uh, We'll go over to the Steele dossier for a second. And by the way, the number is 860 860 275-7266, 275 7266 if you're brave. Uh, you go over to the Steele dossier and what have you got? Okay? I don't know whether the allegations in the Steele dossier are true or not, but they no longer seem far-fetched. They no, no longer seem like crazy talk. I mean, the allegations of course have to do with something of a sexual nature taking place in a hotel room in Moscow and, and 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 with Donald Trump being blackmailed as a result of those um, things that happened. Um, well, is this possible? We we now know it's only not only possible for Donald Trump to be blackmailed, successfully blackmailed for sexual indiscretions he has committed. We, we not only know that's possible, we know that it happened. He was successfully relieved of $130,000 of Michael Cohen's money, whether he paid Michael Cohen back for that money or not, we still don't know. But, I mean, that's a successful act of blackmail. Uh, you can— Stretch the legal definition or shrink the legal definition to suit your purposes, but that's basically what happened, right? Uh, I give you one hundred thirty thousand dollars so you don't talk about something. that's blackmail. Um, and so so we know, we know that that's possible. Another thing that we know is, given just given the acknowledged facts here, we know that Donald Trump's only way that he could ever possibly have sufficient security clearance to look at the kinds of things, that people in the White House look at, the kinds of sensitive documents, top secret documents that uh, that people in the White House look at, is to get elected a president of the United States. In other words, there was no other path for him to ever have access to those kinds of documents because he is exactly the kind of person who cannot get a security clearance. I mean, by a long shot, by a wide margin, he's the kind of... You know, in other words, you can't get a security clearance if you're perceived to have exploitable vulnerabilities. It's why Jared Kushner, whom we'll be talking about in the final segment, can't get a security clearance. Um, it's why John McEntee, who was the former Yukon quarterback, who was Donald Trump's body man, was walked out of the White House a couple of weeks ago, escorted out of the White House without so much as his jacket on, uh, because he had exploitable vulnerabilities relating to high-stakes sports betting, allegedly. Um, you, if you have those things, you're considered a security risk because people can exploit them. Well, with Donald Trump, there's there isn't even a way to make that a conditional statement. You know, if that's possible, you could conceivably be exploited or blackmailed by some outside power. It's already happened. He's already been blackmailed successfully uh, for his sexual indiscretions. So, I mean, given that, he would be—I mean, it wouldn't even be—it would be be a layup. It would be a gimme putt that he can't have any kind of security clearance. The only way—the only path to it is getting elected president of the United States, which happens to be the path that he took. But there's a certain irony in this. This man is not qualified under any other rubric, under any other framework To be able to look at high-value state secrets, and he looks at them all the time, except that, eh, you know, he probably doesn't. Uh, All right. We know he doesn't like to study is what I'm saying. All right. Here's Chris calling from New London. Hi, Chris. Oh, Chris just hung up. Uh, So um, so anyway, I think sort of that, I mean, you can extract your own meaning from Stormy Daniels. I I thought she was a pretty effective witness for herself on television. Uh, She acquitted herself. Well, she's obviously smart. Uh, and uh, able to respond in, in a meaningful and substantive way to questions, as is her lawyer. Um, but I think that that's beside the point, too. I mean, what it all comes down to is that no one denies that she was paid $130,000 never to discuss the fact that she had relations with this man. and. That's, I mean, Now I don't see how that isn't a matter of record at this point. All right, so we're going to take another minute or two with this topic, then we're going to take a break. I want to talk about financial corruption, too. This is sort of a, a thing that has been worrying me a little bit, uh, that we pay so much attention. Uh, to the Russia investigation to the extent that we know what Robert Mueller is up to. We spend so much time looking at the Russia investigation that we're not looking at another way in which our value set uh, has shifted here, and, and I do worry that we may, may never get those values back. All right. So we've got just time to put, talk to Susan in West Hartford. Hi, Susan. You're on the Hey, Colin.
8: Good uh, to talk to you.
0: Good to talk to you, too. Uh,
8: as I recall, granted, it was a while ago. The reason that Bill Clinton got impeached, that a bill of impeachment was brought against him, was not because he had an affair. Mm-hmm. It was because he lied under oath. Right. That's perjury. Mm-hmm. That's a crime. Right. And and I don't think anybody with any brains these days argues that Donald Trump is a scummy human being. On, and on every possible parameter of measurement, he's a scummy human being. Mm-hmm. But scummy, scumminess does not cross over into illegality. But when he does something illegal— like if he has lied under oath, or if he's going to lie under oath, you know, to Robert Mueller, that is a crime. When he is subject to being blackmailed, that's a serious problem. It's completely different than his general human scumminess, <laughs> and and that's what I think that's where the real vulnerability lies in 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 committing a crime or being subject to blackmail. That's where some line has got to be drawn.
0: Right. Well, I, sir, I agree and disagree. Uh, I mean, first of all. Um, the president of the United States is an odd person. I mean, not just this president, any president. It's an odd office because the question of whether or not you've committed a crime isn't necessarily, although I think you, you set up the, the Bill Clinton story accurately, it isn't a determination of whether or not you get impeached. In other words, you get in, you can get impeached, for things that aren't crimes, and you can get crime—you can commit crimes for which you will not be impeached. The impeachment process, I think, ultimately, the way it's understood by constitutional scholars, is a political process. It's ultimately, you've done things uh, for which there is no other way to punish you other than to remove you from office. And so, what do high crimes and misdemeanors mean in this context? I think it's a kind of a shifting set. But ultimately, it's Congress saying we've got to get you out of here. <laughs> and, and, and that's probably the limit of that definition. Um, I, I, I don't lie awake hoping that Donald Trump is going to be impeached. I don't think it's very likely. Uh, I mean, just given, even given the midterm elections coming and a substantial reordering of the numbers. I think that Donald Trump won't be impeached or removed under the 25th Amendment unless his behavior becomes even more erratic, so much so as to scare people even more than they are now scared. Uh, And people, I would say, in the Bolton-Pompeo era are getting a lot more scared. And people, when they look at the stock market, are getting a lot more scared. I still don't think he's going to be impeached. I think it's the less likely of these possibilities. Um, But I do think... Um, that we have to at least acknowledge that he is a blackmailable president. Uh, and he's not a potentially blackmailable president. He is a president who has been blackmailed. Uh, and, and that's significant. It may not be actionable, but it's significant. All right. Uh, thanks for that call. We're going to take a break. I want to talk about financial corruption when we come back. No, I...
1: There's no setup. In the sky, stormy weather.
8: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from me, Kion Wolf, and our intern, Julius Brown. The part of Bill Curry was played by Michael Cohen. On tomorrow's show, we revisit our conversation about sycophants. And now, back to Colin.
0: Well, uh, we, I want to talk about financial corruption uh, now. I know I sound like some uh, I mean, particularly in these last two segments, I sound like some kind of whacked-out conspiracy, I, I sound like the liberal Alex Jones or something. But I really think these things need to be talk, talked about, and they really weigh on my mind these days. So let's begin with a clip from the first press conference uh, given by Donald Trump upon his election
5: to the presidency. I have a no conflict of interest provision, as president. It was many, many years old, this is for presidents, because they don't want presidents getting, I I understand, they don't want presidents getting tangled up in minutiae. they want a president to run the country. So I could actually run my business, I could actually run my business and run government at the same time. I don't like the way that looks, but I would be able to do that if I wanted to. I'd be the only one that would be able to do that. You can't do that in any other capacity. But as a president, I could run the Trump Organization, great, great company, and I could run the company, I, the country. I do a very good job, but I don't want to do that.
0: All right. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, to uh, quote from a, There's a terrific piece by uh, Matthew uh, Iglesias uh, in Vox called Trump's By the way, Vox.com is doing some great reporting these days. It's called Trump's Corruption Deserves to be a Central Issue in the 2018 Midterms. Uh, I. Uh, Recommended to you. But as he points out, I mean, those were empty words. His presidency is riven with conflicts of interest. And the way that he tended to say it is, you know, it's impossible for me to have a conflict of interest. But what he really means is. Obviously, it's possible for him to have a conflict of interest. And he does. He does have many conflicts of interest. He it's impossible for him to be punished for having a conflict of interest. That's closer to the truth, although there's an emoluments clause and we can get into that uh, if there's time. But I want to go back because to me, the question is shifting mores, changing standards of acceptability. So I want to go back to 2008 with you. Come back with me in time to 2008. Um, By the way, if you want to call up about this, 860-275-7266. And what what do I mean by this? If you want to call up about this, 860-275-7266. I guess I mean my premise that if, in fact, there are not wholesale punishments for the kinds of things that I'm about to talk about, we will never recover our notions of politically upright behavior and political corruption. They, they, at the moment, have been placed in a deep freeze. They are in escrow right now, uh, and people are doing pretty much whatever they want to do. Uh, and so, anyway, come back with me in 2008. Um, I, I, Chris Dodd was ending his career as U.S. senator, uh, and he was ending it with a little bit of a smudge on his escutcheon, uh, and it had to do with the fact that he, uh, while being co-chair of the banking committee, Um, had maybe been um, treated as—well, he was—he, perhaps without his knowledge even, had been uh, entered into something called the VIP program at Countrywide Mortgage. Now, Economic analyses of this whole thing, which were done rigorously at the time, could never establish that this amounted to anything. In other words, it was impossible to prove, based on what was known about mortgages at that time, that Chris Dodd and his wife Jackie had benefit even by like a quarter of a point or an eighth of a point beyond mortgages that they could have gotten under any kind of set of conventional arrangements. It, it was just—you couldn't—it w- it was a mortgage rate. It was an okay mortgage rate. It wasn't like this, you know, uh, egregiously good mortgage rate. So—but still, he had to defend himself. He didn't do a good job explaining it. It would have gone away if he'd explained it in a—I a, even— tried to suggest a way that he could talk about it so that it would go away. But he wouldn't do it because he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. And, you know, it was a problem for him. It, it ended his I mean, he was going to get out anyway, but it, it was a very sour note for the end of his career. Now, think about that. <laughs> that he just was going for a mortgage. His wife actually was applying for a mortgage. They got put into a VIP program. It's not clear that that created any advantage but for them. But we still saw that as something he should not have done. Now, like Jared Kushner sits in the White House and meets with entities from foreign countries and then subsequently gets loans from them for his staggeringly bad real estate investments. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is... A level of money changing that, it, I mean, you just, you just sort of think about the fact that it was. we all kind of agreed. Wow, Chris, you know, I mean, even, even if you didn't get anything out of it, you shouldn't have been in a VIP program. If you knew about it, that would be a problem. Th- that is, you know, that's just a feather in a cyclone compared, compared to the kind of stuff that's going on in a daily basis. I was thinking about this reading Over the past few days, I was in New York, sitting in the hotel room, reading the New York Times piece on George Nader, who's a cooperating witness with the Mueller investigation, and a guy named Elliot Elliot Broidy, who I think is the second-ranking finance official in the RNC. He was a huge fundraiser. Uh, I I recommend it if it was a front-page story. Go back and look at it if you have the time. Um, And it's a story about, in fact, paying for access. It's a story uh, (laughs) about— (laughs) The computer just shut down. Uh, All right. So um, it's a story about paying for access. It's a story uh, about uh, arranging uh, to uh, about the United Arab Arab Emirates and and Saudi Arabia being able to use money to get access to the president and 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 also to conduct a campaign uh, against uh, Tillerson uh, and McMaster, who they wanted to get rid of. Uh, and it's, it's a very complicated story. It would be too hard for me probably to uh, tell it right here with about three minutes left in the whole show. But when you when you look at it, one of the things that jumped out at me is that the, uh, the people who are trying to arrange these meetings between the president and Saudi Arabian emissaries and, and uh, United Arab Emirates emissaries invariably requested that the meetings take place in one of his other locations by which they meant Trump Tower or the New Jersey Golf Club or maybe Mar-a-Lago. And and that one of the things that, I mean, we knew from the very beginning that uh, the White House log, the White House visitors log, was no longer going to be transparent. But reading the story, the other thing that's clear to me is when some of these people who want to come in and effectively buy influence – if they want to do it without being detected, it's incredibly convenient that the president spends so much time in properties, the properties that he owns and controls and forces the Social sec- the, the Secret Service to uh, rent uh, expensive golf carts at. Uh, it's, it's so convenient. They, they just say, yeah, no, let's not do this at the White House. Let's do this someplace else. And, and what this is, is a, just a tremendous amount of conflict of interest. You know, as David Frum said, never forget, just for an example, (laughs) never forget, he gets paid, his organization, his company gets paid every month by the Philippines, by some business in the Philippines. It's a business, according to Frum, that is directly connected to the person who's the ambassador from the Philippines to here, Um, and, and that arrangements of this type. This, this, that violate his promise not to run his business out of the White House, not to profit from the position he occupies, um, are, are manifold and very, very difficult to collect in, in any one place. But it, it is just absolutely clear that he and his minions— And his family members and his son going over to India and giving a foreign policy speech while trying to sell overpriced condos. That this is all part of of a system that should never exist. Uh, And hasn't existed in the past. We've had corruption. There's never been a perfectly clean as a whistle government ever. No administration in American history has been perfect. But this, the imperfections of this administration are so large and so unchecked and in many respects conducted so brazenly that if we don't do something big about them, we will never get our understanding of political ethics and political, political corruption back. They will be gone there has to be a correction it has to be a big one thanks for listening today oh, we're gonna to be back tomorrow and I've already forgot <laughs> I got so worked up oh sycophants we're gonna do a show we're gonna re-air our show about sycophants tomorrow I wonder why we're doing that People in chain's he's a quack
2: circus act from the past he's the symbol of the monster we know